Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. God our Savior 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, and 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 2 by James Boyd. The Day of Manifestation. To the solemn fact that all men must have to do with God abundant testimony is borne by the Gospel. We read in Romans chapter 14, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall how to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And not only the overt acts, which men might be able to take account of, but the hidden motives, from which the actions spring, must all be brought to light, for all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. From this day of manifestation there is no escape for anyone. It is but very little we know about one another. We pass by, with very little notice, the humble cottage of the peasant, and admire at a respectful distance the palace of the prince, but the horrors or the happiness enclosed within seldom manifest themselves before our eyes. It is so with the individual, no other human being knows all that a man knows about himself, the heart knows his own bitterness, and a stranger doth not intermeddle with his joy. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 10. We are all very careful to put the best side out, the rottenness within being jealously guarded from the vulgar gaze. But in that day, there is nothing covered, that shall not be revealed, neither hid, that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Luke chapter 12 verses 2 to 3. In that day every man will appear just as he is, neither in his best, nor in his worst, but in his true nature and character, without addition or subtraction, which might be used to decorate or to degrade. Now, however blessed a prospect this may be for those who have tasted of the grace of God, it is a most appalling outlook for the sinner in his sins. Death may be dreaded, is dreaded, more than tongue can tell, and well it may be, with its cold, pallid, pulseless, breathless, motionless form, around which gather stricken, bruised, broken, bleeding hearts. Pouring out uncontrollable and wordless grief in gasps and sobs, which threaten the destruction of the frail, earthly tabernacle, but which elicit no response from the mysterious region into which the beloved object has been so ruthlessly hurried. It may be called, a bend in the road, the debt of nature, a leap in the dark, or anything else which the infidel heart of man may invent, but it is at once the most cruel, unnatural, loathsome, and awe-inspiring thing that a living man has to face, and yet the believer can say, to die is gain, Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. But to the unhappy mortal who begins to feel the presence of the ghastly destroyer drawing near, by far the greater part of his dread comes from the apprehension of something which, crouching in the shadows of the impenetrable future, makes its grim reality felt by every conscience not yet rendered insensible by neglect, ill usage, or the narcotics of hell, and that something is the dread of having to render account to God. The sting of death is sin, and however terrible death may appear in itself, this makes it ten times more terrible. But in what an unhappy condition must the relations of the creature with his creator be, seeing he is appalled at the prospect of having to meet him? Everything must be woefully out of joint when such is the case. One would not naturally expect such a state of things to exist. Nor would it exist were man not alienated in heart and mind from his creator. But the truth is he is a sinner against the God who made him. And his only anxiety is to get as far away from him as ever he can and to keep away from him as long as he can and the thought of having to do with him is a constant terror to the mind. It is conscience that makes cowards of us all, and it will continue to make cowards of us until it has been purged by the blood of Jesus. That man, as far as he has been able, has excluded God from the earth is easy to see. He has those who love him here, no doubt, but they are few in number, and of little importance in the world, therefore of them I do not speak. 
His son has been rejected by the Jew, slain by the Gentile, and at present is of little account among those who profess his name. To speak of him where men congregate together requires a considerable amount of moral courage, not possessed by every one who would gladly see him on it. And to have Jesus referred to in polite society is more than will be tolerated. The one who does so will find himself considered a nuisance, and people will avoid him as they would a plague. I am not forgetting that some are regular attenders at what they call a place of worship, though even this outward semblance of the acknowledgement of God is being abandoned by the many. And what with a heathenish ritual on the one hand and politics on the other, there is very little room in some places for the Father and the Son. Nor have I overlooked the fact that certain parliaments of the world are opened with the invocation of the blessing of God, though by many of the legislators this is submitted to with very ill grace. Nor has it escaped my mind that in case of war his intervention may be solicited by the combatants on both sides, each anxious for his intervention on their behalf, for the destruction of those in the opposite camp. Though of course all confidence of success is placed in the skill of the commander, the courage of the men, and the destructive power of the engines of warfare employed in the field, no. I am keeping all these things distinctly in view when I say that God, as a living, blessed reality, to be brought into all the details of life, the saviour, guide, and strength of his weak, erring creature. One who is necessary to our very existence, without whom, and apart from whose direction, it were, on account of the dangers of the way, madness to move, whose will is to be done in everything, and who is now, and shall be forever, the chief joy of our hearts, is neither known, sought after, nor desired by the great majority of those who are within the circle of the Christian profession. Of course, outside of that he is not known at all. No worshipper of a false god is ashamed of his leader or fetish. A Mohammedan, Buddhist, sun-worshipper, devil-worshipper, man-worshipper, beast-worshipper, reptile-worshipper, all are faithful to their respective creeds, and unblushingly proclaim their allegiance to that which they hold sacred. But with the living and true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the majority of Christian professors neither can, nor will, have anything to do if they can avoid it. Nothing searches the heart and brings to light the secret rebellion within like the revelation of the true God. The antagonism of the human heart to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ can be explained in no other way than that, the revelation of this blessed being in the person of his Son brings to the soul the sense of responsibility and of failure in connection with that responsibility. I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. What has he done to render himself so obnoxious to his creature? He gives to all life, breath, rain, and fruitful seasons, and fills men's hearts with food and gladness. Heaven and earth unite in rendering testimony to his beneficence. His love is infinite, his patience marvellous, his grace past telling. And yet the language of the human heart has been ever since the fall, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty, that we should serve him? And what profit should we have, if we pray unto him? Job 21:14-15. What is the meaning of all this antagonism to a God of such unspeakable goodness? Why should there be a ban upon the name of Jesus? so that the timid amongst his people blush to the roots of the hair when in the presence of the men of the world they are compelled to bear a little feeble testimony to him. And why may we speak about every other man, either dead or alive, without being branded rude or offensive, but not of Jesus? Why should not the Father and the Son be the great theme amongst men on the highway, in the drawing room, and in public places of resort? Why should we see the novel and not the New Testament lay in the lap of the railway traveller? Why should it take less courage to scale a rampart, bristling with cannon than to speak amongst strangers of Jesus and the love of God? Such questions are easily asked, but they may not be so easily answered. The answer furnished by Scripture is that man is a sinner, under the power of darkness, having his ideas of God conveyed to his mind by the father of lies.
He is suspicious of his creator, dreads having to do with him, because he is a rebel against his authority, a transgressor at heart, loving to have his own way, and distrustful of God in his overtures of grace. And yet the day is fast coming in which he shall have to give account of the deeds done in the body, which must be rendered to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Woe be to those who have to stand before that throne on the ground of creature responsibility. What a day of anguish it will be for all who have failed to avail themselves of the shelter provided for those exposed by their sins to that judgment. In view of that day the Apostle says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. It had no terrors for him, nor has it for any of the children of God, for all such have availed themselves of the way of escape held out to all in the Gospel. We have boldness for the day of judgment, 1 John chapter 4 verse 17. But for those who stand there in their sins it will be a day of blank despair. Now whether it be as saviour or as judge that God deals with men, it is by Christ he does so. At the present moment he has assumed the character of saviour, but there is a day coming in which he will sit as judge upon the throne, and that is the day in which, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess to God. There can be no escape for any one. As to the judgment of the living, those who know not God and who obey not the gospel shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As to the judgment of the dead, we have that in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15, and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their work. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their work. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Whether the judgment be that of the living or that of the dead. There does not seem any escape from the second death for those who come into it. And is this not just what one should expect? Surely there must be something wrong where an innocent man is arraigned before the judge, and there must surely also be something sadly at fault where a guilty man escapes the punishment due to his offence. It is true that in the courts of the world men are often brought before the judges and placed upon their trial, and the jury may bring in a verdict establishing the guiltlessness of the accused. The Crown having failed to prove the reverse. But this is not so with men at the bar of God. No one is brought there to see whether he be guilty or not, but as guilty and proven guilty, to have determined by his works the degree of punishment which must be inflicted, Luke chapter 12 verses 47 to 48. Had man remained in innocence there would have been neither dying day nor judgment day for him, but having rebelled against God he has compelled his creator to assume toward him the character of judge. For the righteous governor of the universe must deal with iniquity wherever it is found, and mete out to it the judgment which it demands. The psalmist pleads with the Lord not to enter into judgment with his servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified, Psalm chapter 143 verse 2. Therefore the only hope of the psalmist was that he might not be brought to stand before the bar of God to be judged. Was this a vain petition? Is it possible to have such a prayer answered? Have we not seen that we must all give account to God? It is not a vain petition by any means, and were it not possible to have it fulfilled no man could be saved. To be compelled to give account to God is not the same thing as to be brought into judgment. All must be manifested before the judgment seat, but that does not mean that all thus manifested must have their portion in wrath or favour determined by the deeds done in the body. Salvation is not of works. 
The believer is already justified and partaker of the life of the risen Christ, and when the judgment comes he will be in the likeness of the judge and glorified along with him, Philippians chapter 3 verse 21, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 43. And not only that, but it is expressly stated by the judge himself that the believer does not come into judgment, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word, and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, r, v, but is passed from death unto life, John chapter 5 verse 24. It is necessary for the joy and comfort of our eternal relations with him who loved us and gave himself for us that he should go over our history with us. That we may get light as to all his ways with us, and that we should see a little of our own crookedness and of his grace and patience with us. Also that we should receive rewards for our little service to him in the day of his rejection, though all that service was, after all, but the fruit of his Spirit working in us that which was well-pleasing in his sight. This will be rather the judgment of our works than the judgment of our persons. But the judgment of the wicked is not the judgment of their works, but the judgment of themselves by their works. To be judged by our works would be to be lost forever. If man were not a sinner he would not have to come into judgment, but being a sinner there is no hope for him if he does. In that day there will be no miscarriage of justice, for every man will receive according as his work shall be. How the sinner, who by his works has rendered himself liable to that judgment, can escape coming into it the gospel alone can inform us.